Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here today with my brother, Christian Lewis. It's a Brother, Brother podcast. Today, we're talking about disco. You can learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Now, let's talk about disco. Why it never sucked, never will, and will always be great. Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. It is your host, Wyndham Lewis. I'm here with my brother, Christian Lewis. Today, it is a Brother, Brother podcast, and we are talking about one of my favorite topics in the world, disco. Um, That's right. And I think uh, as, uh, as so many of uh, what I guess, I guess we're in the middle of, uh, of summer break right now, um, but I guess the uh, Brother, Brother, Brother pod is, is going back to school. This is not something that I personally grew up with. So, uh, so you know, I definitely want to hear from Wyndham and, and learn about um, his, well, in my opinion, rather weird obsession um, with disco. And, you know, I guess for me, it's something that, that always sort of uh, arrived in the form of singles and movie soundtracks. And, you know, don't get me wrong, um, Get Down Saturday Night by Oliver Cheatham or, um, you know, some of the, some of the greats by, uh, by Donna Summer are, are a ton of fun. But um, I have to say, something about the glitter cannons and body paint and roller skates is still kind of elusive to me. Um, so I guess we're here today to sort of drill down and, and get a definition. So... If, if I can, can I tee off with a question and, and get this started? All right. So, you know, I guess succinctly maybe describe for us or start by, by sort of saying what is disco? I mean, where, what, are, what are its roots? Where does it come from? Well, thank you for asking. Um, disco is a, I mean, disco is essentially has been allotted to a, a, a period in music and a genre of music uh, that took place in the mid to late 70s. Um, it is a classic kind of dance music, uh, what we consider classic dance music now, uh, sort of four-on-the-floor beat. Um, it was came at a time when um, technology was sort of catching up with analog instruments, so uh, there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of embellishments from um, people who are, ex- you know, largely experimenting and then mastering synthesizers, uh, rhythm machines, you know, rolling beat machines, and um, you know, uh, clavinets, things that are things that are relatively, you know, new to the scene in terms of electronics. The the nice thing about disco for me, and the thing I like about disco, is that it didn't. Um, technology was still evolving. At that point, so it is a mix of instrumentation. It's a mix of synthesized and, uh, like I said, analog instrumentation, um, which I think, you know, produced a particularly great era of uh, dance music. Uh, it's, um, I will say, from a personal standpoint, this also hit when I was between the ages of five and nine, and so 
Uh, my ability to be critical was deeply hampered by my lack of development in the brain. But um, I. But your lack of inhibition was really effective for your interest in dancing all over the place. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, um, it was it was a great. It, so the word disco itself uh, is derived from the French word discotheque, which is literally you know like bibliotheque is a library. Discotheque would be a library of records, and they you know dance clubs started popping up. They didn't really exist before you went to dance halls and you, you, you know, dance to live music. Uh, the idea of spinning records and having people dance at a club is really kind of an um, early 70s creation. Um, and that's what fueled disco and the disco craze. Um, that and so cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> well, I figured there was going to be an entire segment devoted to that subject oh, yeah. at some point during the podcast. But so, what are what are sort of musical roots? I mean, that that's that's really helpful to to sort of frame, I guess, you know, what it means. But like, who what were its influences? Because what? I mean, I'm I'm just thinking about this. Like, we're a couple years on the heels of the Beatles. What Led Zeppelin, I guess, in its early, you know, is is they're really booming. Yeah, yeah, they're they're the masters of the universe at this point. Um, I think that you know it, it sort of derives from a, a sort of an amalgam of of um, influences. I mean, it's funk, soul, salsa, electronic music. It you know is very instrumental in shaping the sort of. Um, uh, the rise of of you know gay gay rights and it was very uh, popular in uh, the gay community. It was an interesting convergence at that point of you know gay culture, black culture, Latin culture. It was sort of a everyone's invited to the party moment that doesn't happen always. Um, but a, a really interesting, I mean, to, just to, if I may interject, I mean, is that so? What you what you are saying though is that it is um, a variety of different uh, you know minorities or subcultures, um, at least, you know, subcultures in the context of, of the record industry, which is basically dominated by, you know, old white guys who are playing white rock music. Yeah, but, uh, well, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't. I mean, Motown was massive uh, in the 60s, and uh, it was really, it, it was more of an on-the-ground convergence of subcultures. Um, I think that uh, you know, that when I talk about the inner, you know, the sort of conflation of, of these, you know, cultural uh, elements, you're talking about people who wanted to go dance uh, and people who like to, uh, you know, listen, you know, people who like to go and dance to dance music in dance clubs. So, uh, you know, and there and was there was community in that. There is community in that. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, too, I mean, you're talking, you know, the sort of precursors to this are things like Motown, um, Sly and the Family Stone, uh, you know, Funk, George Clinton, the OJs, um, Isaac Hayes, uh, Curtis Mayfield, a lot of the Philly uh, sound, you know, Gamblin' Huff and, you know, yeah. Ho- Holland Dozier, Holland from, you know, the Motown stable. Um, you know, TSOP, the Soul Train theme, which is, you know, an MFSB, um, you know, tune from Philly is the, you know, it's it's one of, it's sort of identified as one of the original disco records, and that's around 1972, 73, I think. And then there's MFSB? Like, Sorry, yeah. for those of us who don't know. Oh, I'm sorry. It, it really, they were called MFSB, and there was always oh. some uh, some actual like debate. It, it probably meant something else, but during in press, they said it referred to mother, father, sister, brother. Um, it probably meant something else. <laughs> yeah, uh, I was about to say this is uh, no no whites allowed NWA versus the uh, versus the actual name. Yeah. yeah, and then you know psychedelic soul with like the Chambers Brothers, Isley Brothers, you know. Uh, 
uh, Isaac Hayes being backed by the Barkays and and even you okay. know like uh, Manu Dibango, uh, you know Soul Makasa was a very influential record uh, from the early seventies. A Cameroonian uh, sax player who who had oh like, yeah, my my favorite Cameroonian sax player one of them. Manu Manu Dibango. Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, you um, know, Mama say Mama <laughs> Sama Makasa. Yeah, no, that's that's right. That's uh, that's also, um, I guess you're yeah referring to the Michael Jackson tune. You you told me about this a few minutes ago. Actually, uh, I of course heard that and thought, oh, that's a Lauren Hill lyric from the from a Fuji song. But um, I'm I'm glad to see the legacy stand up. Alas, so it is a Cameroonian sax man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, so so that I guess is sort of I mean that wraps up I guess sort of you know where it came from, but I guess what did it look like in its yeah, early this is, stages this of is, development? This is the precursor, you know. The, these are the you know these are the things that are sort of these are the influences that are coming together to um, you know to sort of make it so. Um, you know, it really was uh, you know soul funk. Uh, and you know, there's a but there are heavy you know rock and roll elements in disco as well. I mean, there's like, guitars and you know the the bass lines are really groovy and uh, you know there's a let's let's take a listen to a little bit of uh, something from you know that that speaks to the origins of the music and then we'll come back in a minute. Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother pod, and today we are talking all about disco. Uh, I am asking Wyndham um, about his experience with it, and uh, he is an incredible fount of knowledge on this stuff. So we've just finished talking a little bit about the origins of the music, uh, the roots in the 60s, um, and, and really, you know, we are just sort of getting into the point where we can talk about uh, the musical development itself. So, yeah, tell me a little bit about early disco and, and how it evolved. Well, it, again, uh, you know, so we're talking, you know, around 74, 75, the first, uh, what you would call now disco records, they weren't referred to as such at the time, but, you know, what would now be uh, referred to as the first disco record started hitting the charts. So, you know, there were some that were being made. There's some a little bit, you know, that predate the 74, 75 moment. But this is when, you know, disco, you know, things that would are, are identifiably disco now 
start hitting the U.S. charts. Um, uh, George McRae's Rock Your Baby is a, um, you know, is a, a staple um, and a song that you've heard a million times, but it was the first song uh, that really chart that's, that was using um, a, a pre-recorded beat as opposed to <clears throat> drums or, or even a drum machine. It was like a, it was like the preset samba kind of beat. And it, uh, you know, it's a great, it's a great tune and cited often as, you know, extremely influential when it came to, again, mixing regular um, instruments with technology. But, you know, a lot of what happened was, you know, the, um, the disco scene and DJs um, started, um, you know, again, DJs started becoming performers in a way. Um, the first one really is uh, David Mancuso. Uh, he had when, when you know after Stonewall, after the Stonewall riots, and you know gay culture sort of establishing uh, a bank hit in in um, in New York City. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, David Mancuso opened up his apartment as a nightclub for gay men, where they could you know without. Uh, fear of police intervention. Start. They they could dance together and socialize. And he was the DJ. Uh, if only there were any apartments left that were big enough to be converted <laughs> into a nightclub in New York City, man. And, that's... Yeah. <laughs> Created. You know, creativity in in the marketing department hadn't happened yet. So this place was called the Loft, uh, which it actually was. As in when... Ann Taylor's. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this, but this is back when you know Soho was bombed out. You know what I mean? This is like when you could rent you know, an entire building down that way for like, you know, 40 bucks a month. It no, it's was, true. There's, the, what's the, um, what was the, that, the old corner building that's right there on Bowery and is it Bond or, but one of those anyway that, um, or maybe Spring that, uh, that basically this photographer bought back in 1968 and has held on to ever since and nobody's had any idea who lived there until about two years ago when he <laughs> came forward and said, yeah, I've been living there with my family the whole time. That's and the awesome. guy bought it for something like 10 grand. Oh, I yeah. mean, it's literally, it is half of the city block. It's incredible. So, yeah, no, that seems like a perfect spot for a, for a nightclub. Yeah, and, you know, sort of, you know, this was a detente of sorts, you know, uh, where the, the police, you know, were, were told to lay off and, and you know, you could you could have a party down there all night for 48 hours probably and nobody would pay any attention at all. Um, but through that, you know, through the loft, you know, people like Mancuso, Shep Pettibone, uh, Nicky Ciano, and, you know, a, a young Larry Levin, uh, Larry Levin, started uh, DJing and, and, and sort of getting known as people who could play records as music. I know that sounds kind of crazy now, but, you know, the, the beat matching and, and the seamlessness between songs was, you know, was uh, a brand new thing then. And, um, you know, there's a bunch of, again, there's a bunch of songs from this, you know, very brief moment that, that became big, hit, big radio hits and big chart successes uh, that are that are sort of, um, you know, notable as the um, baby steps that lead us to the massive disco boom a few years later. And that would be you know, Love's Theme by the Love's Unlimited Orchestra, Barry White's band, um, TSOP, as I mentioned before, by uh, MFSB. Uh, Kung Fu Fighting by Carl Douglas, which, um, you know, is sort of a novelty song, but when you get down to the track itself, it's a pretty, you know, pretty tight disco tune. And then by 75, Casey and the Sunshine Band come out on TK Records, uh, a complete outlier because they're coming from, you know, the swamps in Florida. Um, you know, they have no business. Uh, TK Records is not 
really a thing. Uh, it's not a, certainly a legitimate industry, notable industry uh, mover shaker, but the music is so uh, catchy and powerful that they wind up with a string of number one songs off their debut album. I think it went triple platinum, uh, including Get Down Tonight and The Way I Like It, which really kind of took the Sly and the Family Stone um, you know, sort of mixed race band and you know, di- turned it, um, I would say, more... In a, in a weird way, the, a more uh, sort of predominantly white sound of soul, like, uh, you know, almost a blue-eyed soul version. Uh, and that's really kind of what disco, um, you know, that's where the threads of disco really kind of exist. It's, it's, a, it, it's you know, sort of racially unidentifiable, I'd almost say. Um, it, you know, sort of, you could, it, it had its feet in, firmly in both camps, um, and so it was a uniter. It was a really, uh, and that's, it's a really good time music. Um, and so I'm a little interested in, you know, I, I, some of the songs that you just mentioned, I would m- sort of more traditionally, and I, Casey and the Sunshine, Sunshine Band in particular, um, and, you know, Carl Douglas's Kung Fu Fighting, I'm thinking, you know, these to me are like, this is pretty traditional funk music, right? Um, and I guess what I'm wondering is, I mean, was it, so funk songs, but played by DJs and clubs, was disco? Well, no, I think is funk, um, you know, funk sort of uh, straddling the line um, into a more pop arena. Funk, um, you know, it wasn't very song oriented, wasn't very lyric forward. And this, you know, sort of tight, this is probably a cleaner version of, you know, of, of a, you know, uh, bigger, you know, I can't say, I can't describe funk without calling it funky. Um, but you know, it's, it, it's probably, um, it's sort of swollen bass lines. I, I think of funk as being exclusively, um, instrument driven though. I think yeah. is one important component of it. Yeah. Right? This is, this is more song forward. This is if, you know, funk hit the Brill building. Somebody called, I think it was, uh, I, and I for, forgive me for not remembering who it was, but, uh, somebody called, uh, somebody referred to, Funk. I mean, somebody referred to disco as the Philadelphia Philadelphia soul with a bow tie on it. Um, nice. And it, that kind of clean. You know, it was sort of a cleaner, um, more broadly appealing version of funk and soul. Okay, so there definitely at this point is. I mean, you know, it's sourcing from a couple of different genres, and maybe it's about to uh, fully develop into its own sort of. Independent, you know, branded music is that right? Yeah, I mean, it is, and and for better and worse, I think you know, disco became stigmatized very quickly, and I'll get into that a little bit later. But um, it also um, continued well after uh, people stopped calling it disco, uh, and you know, it's sort of in in sheep's clothing um, in other you know in other parts of of music. But disco never truly died; it just um, went masquerading as other things later. Okay, so should we take a quick break there and listen to uh, some of the sort of early disco that you've been talking about, and then we can come back and talk about the the absolute sort of pinnacle heyday. Yeah, that's that sounds great.
welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. This is Christian Lewis, and I'm here with my brother, Wyndham Lewis, and we are talking about disco today. We have just reached 1976, and the dam breaks. A hundred percent. Yeah, it was, it was crazy. I mean, uh, as a, you know, I'm a little, I'm a little kid at this point and even, you know, you can just, you, you just feel the, the, uh, sort of tenor of music and radio changing. It's, uh, it, you know, it, everything is becoming more dancey. Um, you know, it's still, like I often say, you know, I always talk about AM music from my youth as, you know, it's such a mixed bag, but this is when, you know, Donna Summer, um, you know, is being played alongside More Than a Feeling and and um, Don't Fear the Reaper in 1976. Uh, you know, Queen, I mean, uh, Hart and Queen and, you know, Minnie Ripperton. And, you know, it was a weird mixed bag. But, you know, this is the point at which, you know, Donna Summer, uh, who has a really long and interesting history, I think, uh, Boston native, um, was in the touring company of Hair and uh, was a model and studio, you know, studio musician in Germany um, after settling there and marrying an Austrian actor. And she is approached by a guy named Giorgio Moroder uh, to do some tracks and help her write uh, a new a song he's working on called Love to Love You Baby. Um, which is really a huge turning point in the world of disco and in the world of music and, and electronic dance music. Ultimately, I mean, this is you know this is you know one of the great big bangs if you're if you're into dance music. Um, you know, Donna Summer uh, co-writes and records the demo. They go looking for somebody better to sing, they somebody else to go sing the song. And unbeknownst to Donna Summer, Giorgio Moroder takes the demo track and signs with uh, Casablanca Records and releases it, and it becomes a number one hit. Um, Love to Love You Baby is also really historically important because the radio edit obviously becomes a hit in... I mean, it's recorded in 75, 76. It becomes a hit on um, both sides of the Atlantic. But it was also um, because the disco, um, the actual disco tech is becoming so popular and DJing is becoming so popular, <clears throat> Giorgio Moroder takes this song that, it, you know, he, he takes, this is actually, it's a 16-minute full side of an album uh, of one song, which, uh, love to love you, baby, which, you know, start to finish goes through a number of different, um, sort of, uh, you know, twists and turns. It's got the, you know, the song, uh, the singing, uh, sorry, the vocal part that Donna Summer, you know, contributes to, and then extends for, you know, what, 12 minutes after that into, you know, just, I think even longer, I think it's, I think it's about three minutes. So it's an unusual song in that the, the the radio edit single is actually the first three and a half minutes, at which point the music fades and it comes back with just a bass line. Mm-hmm. And that to me is that's my absolute favorite part of the song where you just have this, you know, and like that is just it I mean that goes on minutes, for a yeah. minute and then the drums eventually start to come back with you know just like a, a really sort of tight minimalistic like a little bit of hi hat um, you know really sort of contained um, disciplined drumming and then it, the whole thing just sort of opens up and wails again and her voice is just amazing on it's that amazing song. I mean it's it really a- it's a spectacular m- movement of of something yeah. you know it's like it's a 
And as a as a you know six year old, this was uh, this was just a hit record as far as I was concerned. But I, I didn't really you know know the the cultural impact it was going to have. But it really it was a huge moment for a lot of different reasons. And and disco you, it does not you know sort of exist in a ba- in a vacuum outside of. Um, you know, what was going on in society at that point. I mean, women were, you know, this was a sort of sexual awakening uh, and the beginning of the women's rights movement, or not the beginning, but, you know, the sort of main... The the, 70s reinterpretation of it. Yeah, I mean, this was a massive moment. I mean, you know, the pill is legal, abortion is legal. Um, You know, the the casual sex becomes a thing in the the 70s that, you know, and... uh, Is that not to completely butcher our understanding of, of... um, you know, of, of of the women's rights movement. But I think, I mean, a big part of it is basically that more and more people are going to work, right? Like, everybody's a part of the workforce now. Among so other like, things, I mean, yeah. I mean, it was, it really was, uh, that was an unusual thing at that point. Um, and, and women are, are, you know, living single. It, you, you didn't move out of right. your house the Mary for Tyler a long Moore time. Yeah, yeah, the Mary right. Tyler Moore, you know. And so this is, you know, and, and Donna Summer's sexuality in this song you know, was is, is telling in your ears the second you start listening to it. Yeah, yeah it's awesome. But you know, when the idea it's of, dominant, of yeah. sexual pleasure for women wasn't really you know a, an advertised broadcast uh, thing until about this time, really. You know, this is when you know books start coming out about um, you know the Nancy Nancy Friday's books about women's sexual fantasies, all this stuff that um, you know really contributed to you know liberating um, and and making women independent. Um, you know, this is, this is the, this is the focal point. This is the moment. And so it's, you know, not to, not to dwell too much on the sociology. Yeah, that was, that was women's rights brought to you by the brother, brother, brother. But it was a really interesting, you know, when you're looking back, it was a really interesting time. And and to my, again, to my six-year-old ears, it was just an awesome song. And, uh, you know, the, the whole thing was just, you know, pretty amazing. Um, 70, you know, it going on from there. Um, you know, there's a, there's a, you know, that, first of all, Donna Summer becomes the, you know, queen of disco and had, you know, f- what, 14 top 10 hits. She was, she was absolutely reigning at that point. I mean, she had three double albums that went to number one in a row. It was nuts. Um, yeah, that's, that's, uh, I think it's safe to say that that's, I don't know, do you get a grand slam for that? Like, I mean, it's she damn does, close. She does. Um, yeah. and you know, then, uh, Disco kind of in 77 and, and, you know, disco just kind of becomes ever present. It's, it's, it's in everything. It's, you know, this is when Steve Rubell and Ian Schrager opened Studio 54. I mean, that becomes an international phenomenon. Even as a kid, I knew about Studio, even as a kid living in Virginia, I knew about Studio 54. And because of your parents. Well, <laughs> or because of your uncle anyway. Uncle used yeah. to hang out there, but, um. You know, so 77, Saturday Night Fever soundtrack comes out. Um, Barry Gibb, basically, uh, you know, a guy who had been in the Bee Gees since he was a teenager. Um, you know, the Bee Gees find their moment. They had always been, you know, the, the sort of the Beatles imitators and then, you know, sort of didn't really have an identity. 1975's main ingredient, they have Jive Talking and, and uh, Nights on Broadway, during which... During the session, um, Barry Gibb discovers that he has a rip and falsetto. They come back to record their follow-up album to Main Ingredient. It's untitled. Um, their manager, Robert Stigwood, de- decides to produce a movie called Saturday Night Fever based on a New York uh, Magazine article. Um, 
and you know about so this people is, going okay, dancing. So, and so, so is this one basically like Saturday Night Fever? Is I mean, but that this is when basically disco takes over every different correct. media genre. <laughs> like you it, know, it just it becomes completely universal. You know, when the Pillsbury Doughboy started rapping in commercials, that's what uh, happened with n- disco at this point. <laughs> Not really, but I, I take your word for it. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was like it was one of those things. Like you know, just there was no, there was nobody who wasn't talking about. It. There was no, uh, nothing was being sold. Nothing was being yeah, that wasn't you know sort of trying to capitalize on this you know massive trend. But you know, like I said, so the BGs are recording their follow up to main ingredient. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, main course and. Um, they they record a, a series of songs. Those songs are in the hands of their manager, who decides he's going to produce a movie called Saturday Night Fever. He decides that this uh, group of songs is going to be the perfect soundtrack to this movie about uh, you know um, middle class you know working class kids in Brooklyn going to discos, and boom, you have uh, you know the uh, the a, you know the a bomb of disco. It just it's on everything. Um, the BGs, you know, absolutely dominate the next couple of years on the charts. It's one of those times when you know they have five singles in the top ten at the same time. Um, Barry Gibb is giving songs to everybody from his brother Andy to Yvonne Elliman to Barbara Streisand, and they're all becoming number one songs, and they all sound like BG songs. Um, okay. This is yeah. This is like the the Max Martin effect, or you know the Charlie XCX effect, where like you can track, you know the um, you can basically the track DNA, the yeah. yeah exactly. I mean, a song sounds like a song sounds like a song by a certain person. Um, wh- so let me, but just because I think that the movie you know is an important thing beyond the music, right? Um, yeah, it was a big hit. What the hell is going on with the aesthetic at this point? Like, I mean, we're talking about you know the the sort of the tile dance floor that lights up with different colors and white seemingly pleather-ish suits polyester again there's a it's it it all ties back to technology i mean this um you know in addition to the synthesizer being you know or in parallel with the synthesizer being invented um certain new fabrics like you know rayon and dacron and and uh you know different hybrids of polyester uh, start creeping into our clothes because they don't need to be ironed. And so, you know, this is truly what the leisure suit was, was a suit that you could wear in your leisure time that didn't require the kind of maintenance that, like, a gray flannel suit had. And it was, you know, it was active wear. And so all those scenes and, and boogie nights <laughs> that you see where people are dressed a certain way, you know, those were, this was, a. I mean, the the, the style was garish. It was funny. It was awesome. It's really fun to, to recreate now. But it, at the time, it wasn't campy. It was it was basically people wearing, um, you know, what they thought was the future of clothing. It was, uh, you know, space age polymers uh, being made into pants. That, um, you know, so you're the, blaming you're blaming science. <laughs> I blame science. I blame you know all sorts of there was a there was a, a lot of blame to go around, but. Um, <laughs> You know, it was it was a, a relatively short-lived period. Um, you know, the the wide bell bottoms, the big ties, the tinted glasses, the whole you know the man perms. Um, you know, the whole thing was just bonkers, uh, fueled by lots of drugs. Um, but you know, I always said I, I had uh, pitched a show a number of years ago that takes place in this period, and I and my my whole hook for this period, this 1976 to 1979 period, is that. 
you know, sex is fun. It's, I mean, it's still fun, but it, it, sex is fun and it's not dangerous yet. And drugs aren't addictive yet. So you have this short window where everybody's just like, fuck yeah. And yeah. It, it's... No. Yeah, no, it's it's the action before the consequence, but it's Absolutely. really at a point where people didn't fully comprehend. Well, AIDS isn't on the map yet. Um, rehab, not really on the map yet, except for you know people like you know man with the golden arm and and um, you know uh, the the rare you know overkill alcoholic. But um, you know people didn't you know. DUIs were a misdemeanor, you know what I mean? It's that kind of thing. This is, you know, the safety of other humans was not really being as... I mean, lower, on this the, is, this is, lower on the priority. Yeah. I mean, to, to personalize it, this is Sarah and I getting picked up at the airport, Dad having a, a scotch uh, on the, you know, on the passenger side floor of his uh, car, you know, driving down the, you know, the 405 to, to back to Santa Monica, you know, with a cocktail in his lap. You know, this is this is how we lived back then. <laughs> it's a simpler yeah. time. That's quite an image, as I'm sure he's in his he's in his aviators and a dashiki at that point. So aviators, um, dashiki, boat shoes. Yeah, it was it was a, <laughs> it was a sight. But this is the, the other thing I think that's interesting about this is that, um, and this you know sort of brings it back to the music that you have studied more keenly and know more about. But this is exactly the same period of of punk rock. Um, uh, this it's hard is, to believe, but yeah. I mean, this is, and they were both kind of reacting to the same thing. I mean, they were reacting, you know, this is a shit economy, high unemployment, overly serious and like super indulgent rock and roll music that's, you know, all, you know, sagey and, and mystical and, and full of solos. And, you know, I think, you know, punks were basically saying, like, fuck you. And, yeah, they were nihilists, you know. And then that the, was sort of you know, their... the, the, the people who were into disco were like, fuck it. The, the world's coming to an end. We're having we're in the middle yeah. of a Cold War. We're afraid. They were like, day. I will fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> was actually the, yeah, yeah, that was exactly. their version of it. So, it's, you know, so it's, you know, it's, it's basically two reactions to the same set of uh, circumstances. Interesting. Um, yeah, no, I, I mean, I think that's a that's a great way to contextualize it in the sort of socioeconomic, uh, uh, you know, time period as well. So what? Um, let's let's take a break right now, and, and like I definitely want to hear a cut from uh, from from this era. Um, you know, roller skates and you know whistles Cl- and clams all. on the half shell and roller skates. Roller skates, as she absolutely. <laughs> Did she say that? Yeah, um, good times, right? Alright, um, cool. Well, so, uh, yeah, we'll throw something on and, uh, we'll be right back.
Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Today we are talking about disco. And um, like all awesome parties, uh, disco itself ended with a pretty massive hangover. Yeah, so one of my favorite facts about disco, or maybe about the end of disco, is the fact that it ended almost overnight on a baseball field in Chicago, which is not necessarily the place I would have picked for the death of disco. But tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah, that's usually only the end of every Cubs season uh, that dies a painful death on a field in Chicago. But this was uh, this was actually Comiskey Park. It was the White Sox game. And the White Sox weren't drawing very well. And a couple of local DJs, um, you know, it was sort of capitalized on. At this point, I, I will have to, I'll take a step back and then I'll talk about uh, the, the disco demolition um, rally. But but um, at this point, disco had so super saturated that it was crazy. It went from kind of nothing in 76 or like hints of it in 75, 76 to just everybody, everything being so pervasive that you couldn't help be sick of it. And again, you're, you're, you're dealing with a small number of outlets that, that control your entertainment. So, you know, everybody's playing disco. I'm sure there was radio stations that went to all disco formats. There was, you know, it was it was a complete overreaction by the entertainment industry. I, they made some of the the worst, and by worst I mean best worst movies of all time, uh, to try and capitalize on the disco uh, phenomenon, including Can't Stop the Music, uh, starring Bruce Jenner and the Village People. Um, which is a must see. Xanadu. Um, I mean, it's just this is what this is what mountains of cocaine uh, do to people's ability to create. It, it just it, it dulls it dulls any sense of what's good and bad. Of inhibition. Yeah. yeah. Basically, if you've seen the um, feel my heat scene from Boogie Nights. Um, that is the single greatest encapsulation um, of uh, Dirk Diggler and uh, Chest Rockwell in the studio. Um, sing, you know, putting together that um, that is the single greatest uh, encapsulation of of how badly the seventies burned out at the end. Um, like, yeah, you know. When, when people say there are no bad ideas and brainstorming, it should be remembered that that is not actually true. Yeah. <laughs> so getting back to the disco demo, so the charts are, are jam-packed with, with disco songs, good and bad. I mean, you've got, you know, the awesome uh, Nile Rodgers and Chic uh, hitting the you know, charts big time at this point, but you are also got shit like, you know, Disco Duck and, and just everybody throwing their hat in to do disco. Uh, um, and, you know, there, there was a real divide between traditional, you know, rock traditionalists and um, people who like disco. Um, and again, disco was, yeah, I can, it's easy to understand how people got sick of it. So 1979, Comiskey Park, Chicago, a couple of DJs come up with the idea of having a disco demolition rally. The disco demolition rally, bring disco records, burn them on the field. They light off, they make a pile of disco records. They light off a bunch of dynamite underneath it. A, it destroys the field and B, everyone gets so overexcited that they rush the thing and it just becomes a riot. Um, <laughs> That's awesome, Chicago. So yeah, this and um, made a lot of headlines, but it was it, it kind of uh, was this cathartic thing where people are like, okay, disco's dead, and uh, that's when the, it 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 has a it, there is very, there are few very few trends that are marked with this spectacular of a funeral, but um, <laughs> you know this was it, and you know people like I always say people continued to make disco songs well after disco was uh, stigmatized and discredited and 
persona non grata at the party, um, you know, certainly off the wall and thriller um, are nothing if disco uh, doesn't exist. But that's a little bit that you know too is is a is another conversation. It is it is funny in retrospect um, that you know these the sort of rock loyalists were the ones that that tried to destroy disco because most of the rock bands at the time that were um, you know sort of seeing a dip in sales during, due to the popularity of of disco were chasing uh, you know were were you know, falling all over themselves to release something that sounded disco. And I mean, that includes, you know, another one bites the dust, which is a di- by queen, which is a direct lift of the baseline from good times. That's, admittedly that's a, so. But yeah, exactly. That's not a, that's not an attempt at a disco song so much as a, you know, they're a good band that's taking an element of disco and doing their own thing with it. There are some really, really crap examples of non-disco bands trying to make disco yeah, that I, so that I'm just, Kicking around a couple of my I'm not saying that right everybody now. failed at it. I'm just saying that everybody tried it. That is a that is a that is a song that was attempting a, a, to be disco. Uh, Miss you an emotional rescue by the Stones, um, which most Stones fans turn their back. I actually like those songs. Um, Shakedown Street by the Grateful Dead, which is just full on, you know, dead trying to do disco, which is just I mean, in my opinion, just as bad as a dead trying to do rock. Um, do You Think I'm Sexy by Rod Stewart, which is a fucking killer disco song. <laughs> uh, I Was Made for Loving You by Kiss, which, uh, you know, their fans just got pissed. And, yeah, uh, I bet. Like, I mean, but they were the other ones. On, they were on the same label as Donna Summer and everybody. I mean, it was funny. And if they were nothing, if they weren't chasers of cash. Also, can we talk about how Kiss is a great name for a disco band? Totally. <laughs> totally. Um, and a great disco song by Prince. Um Shine a Little Light by ELO. I mean, ELO had a lot of disco elements anyway with the strings and everything, but this was like a real disco song. And then, you know, get Barbara Streisand doing an entire duets album with Barry Gibb and also doing, you know, Enough is Enough with Donna Summer, uh, a song written by Barry Gibb. So, you know, there, it was just everybody was trying their hand at disco. Like I said, my, my great regret in the 70s is that Elvis dropped dead before he was able to put out his disco record. I think that would have been killer. Yeah, I think you're right. Based on Elvis in Vegas, you you are uh, you you've convinced me of that. <laughs> uh, well, one can only dream. So, um, you know, 1979 personally was also the year that um, so our family, Becerra and I, uh, who would at this point, you know, through um, petty larceny and saving of uh, allowance money, I, I had probably amassed about 250. Uh, 45s at this point in my life and they were all put in a box and we moved from Virginia to New York and they got stolen. So I lost my entire record collection in 1979. Um, you mean it got, it got stolen again? It, yeah, exactly. It got re-stolen by the, by the wrong people. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, so I, I mean, it was sort of, it was weird now in retrospect to, to think that in the fall of 1979, all of my disco records disappeared. But that is, a, like I said, a personal aside. You want to take a break and come back and talk uh, aftermath? Absolutely. Sounds good.
Welcome back to Brother, 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 where today we are talking all about disco. Uh, And we are now, I guess, moving past the death of disco into the aftermath. Um, The only note that I was given about this prior to the show (laughs) beginning simply reads, AIDS, crack, Michael Jackson, good times becomes hip-hop staple. Um, So if those words, I I don't know, you want to make some sense of that for me? No, really. I I think that's the end of the segment right there. AIDS, crack, Michael Jackson, good times becomes hip-hop staple. Um, I think that's pretty self-explanatory. So 1979, you know, the Disco Sucks rally, everything draws to a close, all the great songs by... You know, Cheryl Lynn, To Be Real, Amy Stewart, Knock knock on Wood. I mean, every, you know, Andy Gibb, all the greats that uh, I knew and loved as a child, um, you know, sort of fade from the radio. And, um, you know, a couple years into the 80s, disco's gone. You know, that whole good time feeling. um, It's weird. 1979 felt apocalyptic in the way that I think you know, maybe 2016 or 17 does to people today. Um, we had Three Mile Island. We had the Iran uh, hostage crisis. Um, you know, uh, inflation was in the double digits. Uh, gas was um, in short supply going, you know, the the cost of living was going through the roof. We had a, an, a, a president that nobody liked that we were trying to flush out. And nobody really, you know, everybody thought the world was going to end. This is the middle of the Cold War. So, um, you know, this, this disco party that, that sort of distracted everybody for a couple of years uh, was great fun. And then it kind of just, you know, the needle literally just skips off the record and, and it's the 80s. And we elect Ronald Reagan and, you know, things ultimately, the wheels are in motion and, you know, people start getting greedy and things get prosperous. And again, this is this is not meant to be a history lesson, but, you know, um, following the, you know, the great cocaine mountain of, of the late 70s comes addiction. And with that addiction came the crack epidemic and a really, you know, harsh uh, it, it basically all the all the fun that was had in, in that window of time of disco, the consequences hit, uh, and, and and they you know obviously they weren't earned consequences they're horrible um, coincidences but um, you know AIDS comes on the scene, crack hits the scene so you've got uh, all the sex and drugs that were being done um, you know rather frivolously and and in in a party and fun way in the seventies became treacherous in the 80s it was um oh, that sex- sucks just as you were getting to high school exactly sex kills you <laughs> drugs kill you um and uh you know i that, that's as much as i'm going to say on the on that subject because it, it but it really did feel like a deflation of the party it felt like you know the world's longest ugliest cruelest hangover um and uh that that said music wise um you know Michael Jackson, Prince, and Madonna become, and by 1984, have become, you know, the biggest acts in the world. Michael Jackson, uh, by virtue of two albums, you know, that are majorly indebted to disco. Rod Temperton, uh, who wrote, uh, you know, a good quantity of Michael Jackson's hits, was was the leader of Heat Wave, who had done Boogie Nights and Groove Line, and um, among others. And um, so Michael Jackson, you know, to me, Off the Wall and Thriller are both continuations of the disco um you know genre uh prince prince owes a huge debt of gratitude to the the disco folks that come before him i think he you know incredibly um 
creative and puts his own spin on it. But you know, there's no there's no foundation for Prince's music without um, a lot of the disco stuff. And, and the Madonna, who um, you know was she was working with the same producers that were coming out of uh, the DJ culture. I mean, Jelly Bean and and um, you know those guys that were uh, you know the the um, Paradise Garage uh, downtown. Uh, scene, you know, the sort of uh, were were the ones that really pro- you know produced and and shepherded Madonna uh, through her early, earlier periods. Um, good times, which you know, again, nobody's listening to disco, but somehow Good Times gets uh, repurposed as the back track for every hip hop song uh, for the first several years of of you know the hip hop evolution. You know. Um, uh, Rapper's Delight and, you know, countless others. I mean, that was basically the baseline track for people freestyling. So Well, it, we're back to DJs and club music. I mean, that's part of it. Like, exactly. there's, there's a certain uh, logic to that, as I see it. Yeah, and also, you know, I think the, the whole notion of the producer's medium, something somebody like Giorgio Moroder plucking Donna Summer from obscurity and, and um, you know, putting her, having her co-write with him, but also sort of putting her in the middle of a great track to, to embellish with her amazing vocals. I mean, that is, that is the root of all house music. It's finding a great vocalist to sing over the beats that you create as a producer. Yeah, and and certainly the emergence of the MC and in, in early hip hop and rap, you know, served a similar sort of function. I think. Yeah. So um, I mean, so that era really does, you know, I mean, there is it, it does have its place on the evolutionary chart. It wasn't just an outlier of you know this great party in the late seventies. There was, you know, you gave rise to the idea of a producer's medium and you know um, creating music synthetically, um, you know, through uh, existing. Uh, sounds and music, so it's it's very cool the way that you know sort of moved. Um, not to not to mention it built. I mean, it really was the the early. I mean, it was the it was the blueprint for club culture, and um, you know that that continued to this day, but didn't really exist before that. So right. you know, I think that's a. I mean, if I could, in, in my, you know, fan, like I went to, when I went to high school, like everybody I went to high school with, you know, sort of said, ah, you know, we didn't, we're not living through it. Like everybody does in high school. Like we got, we were born at the wrong time. I'll, but all my contemporaries wanted to go back to the 60s. I wanted to go back to 1977, 78, and 79 in New York City and have three great years <laughs> and say goodbye. Um, yeah, alternate, alternating between Paradise Garage and, uh, and CBGB's and Studio 54. in the same night. Yeah, exactly. I, I just um, think it sounded fun. Um, it sounds like a dangerous night out, but, <laughs> but yeah, it does. I'm up for um, it. Cool. So should we, uh, I guess we've, we've wrapped up Disco. That's been an incredibly uh, educational session. Um, should we... Take a quick break here and then come back and and talk about what we're listening to and add a couple songs to the playlist. Yes, we should.
Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Uh, we are going to end today's podcast the way we end every podcast. Uh, Christian, what are you listening to? So I'm actually uh, listening to, I'll mention a, a podcast right now. It's really cool. Um, it's, uh, if you check out the, the Rolling Stone Music Now podcast, they've actually just put out um, Jan Wenner's uh, 1970 interview with John Lennon in New York City. Um, and this was right before he puts out his first uh, his his first solo album. So it's a it's kind of a fascinating look into uh, into history and something that you know I feel like I would normally only get out of like a, a music documentary, but it's actually been kind of fun to listen to the original tapes. That's really cool. I got to check that out. I haven't done it yet. I am listening to the new album by Perfume Genius, um, and I am loving it. It's everything that I liked about their earlier stuff, uh, and um, it is, you know, it's it's the the grandness of of what the, the sorry the album's called No Shape. It just came out this week, and it's the same sort of uh, unabashed. Um, it's great pop song writing. It's great singing, but also just the unabashed grandiosity of the production is what I've always liked about the music, and um, it is not afraid to be big and bold and flashy and. Excellent. So, if you like big, bold, flashy, and excellent, check out Perfume Genius. I'm and we sure. are talking about disco, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, so. it, it felt like, a, it, it feels like, uh, you know, it's the spirit of disco, certainly. Uh, it's not the sound of disco, but it's the spirit. And cool. So, shall we keep going and, and put a couple songs on the playlist here? Yeah, I think we should. Um, um, well, let me kick it off then, because actually, as, since you mentioned... Uh, Mike Hadreas and um, and Perfume Genius. I mean, that guy is is super talented. Um, I think the first time that we talked about uh, talked about him, and I'm I'm totally taking credit for this right now. Um, but I, I sent over uh, the song Queen to you because I just thought it was like it was just so fucking anthemic, right? Like yeah, I love huge. that song. Um, it really is. It's just this. It's this tremendous sort of builder, um, and it is amazing amazing headphone song um but you know it's it's great in any context so for the playlist the top 1000 no fuck the the one that the ten, the 1000 top 10 songs of all time i am adding queen by perfume genius that is a great call for the 100,000 top 10 songs of all time i too am going to add one of the greatest headphone songs of all time and in keeping with our theme today in keeping with our subject i am going to throw on the collaboration between Giorgio Moroder and Donna Summer i feel love oh uh, awesome i'm excited to have that on there it is i was i was walking around today um you know and you can really lose yourself in that song. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Georgia Moroder's soundtrack work, too. And, you know, this is basically, you know, he took that song and, and created the soundtrack to Midnight Express. But um, 
it is it's funny the first two singles by Donna Summer I'd uh, love to love you baby and I feel love are one is almost completely um instrument driven and one is almost completely synthes- synthesizer music so and they both have like a really they're both amazing um anyway that's uh, enough said but listen to both of them extremely loudly on your headphones tonight well, uh, Wendy, thank you so much. This has been super educational. I feel like I, I'm much better versed in, in disco and sort of where it came from, what it sounded like uh, at its peaks, and um, I'm I'm kind of excited to uh, throw on my, my boogie shoes. Yeah, I think you should put on your bo- 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 boogie shoes and boogie with you. All right, thanks so much. Let's uh, let's do it again soon. Cool. Catch you next week. That's it for this episode of Brother, Brother, Brother Podcast. Many thanks to Simon Doom for our intro music, Hair of the God, and to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall. You can learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Tweet our mistakes and your recommendations and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. And it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Until next time, on behalf of Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you for listening.